Good morning again and welcome to the creek. But before we jump in and get started, can we just take a moment and let's welcome our campuses, Somerset, Williamsburg, and Bell County, and as well as those watching online, and give them a warm creek welcome this morning. It's great to be with you. I know some of you, some of you I don't know, but let me just tell you who I am. My name is Will. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. Uh, my very first sermon I ever preached was a year ago today on Labor Day weekend. And right now I'm currently serving in Bell County as our interim campus pastor. But I can tell you this, it's a privilege to be with you this morning. And as Ethan said, we've been in this series since the beginning of August. It's this idea of being built to last. And it's talking all about the church and that the church uh, be began roughly about 2,000 years ago, and the church became a movement, and it became even bigger than a movement, and it was actually uh, right up on the heels of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it became such a powerful movement. It became such a fast-growing movement that it began to overtake some things. It overtook uh, the temple as, as they knew it in, in Israel right there in Jerusalem, but more than that, it actually overtook overcame the Roman Empire, which is where we started at the very beginning of this series. So I'm just taking you back just for a brief moment. And it's this idea right here. The church is the reason the world changed once upon a time. It's the very reason it changed. And it became an unstoppable force, an unstoppable movement, fulfilling the very words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 16 that says, On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, it will not prevail. That no matter what's going on in the world, no matter what's happening around us, no matter what's happening across the pond or in other countries, that no matter what direction our society or culture is going, the church will continue to remain. Amen. It will continue to have influence and it will continue to be impactful. And so this is going to be true of us today right here. The church is the hope of how the world can change again in our time. But I'm going to tell you something. If we were to look at things, especially in America, something seems off. Uh, the, the church actually seems less influential. And if you were to look at the statistics across the board, um, many have said we have already hit the plateau. We are beyond the plateau to a decline. And the church in America is actually dying. And that just seems odd because Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against it. In 2014, 4,000 new churches opened. And 3,700 closed. That's a plus 300. In 2019, 3,000 opened, just five years later. And 4,500 closed. A minus 1,500. And the statistics aren't even out post-COVID yet, but we know that 33% of the church, at least as we know it in America, is non-existent anymore. And the question is, why? I think that's what you have to ask. You've got to be able to ask a question as to why it's happening. Well, I will tell you this. We say this often, that history has this tendency, it has a propensity 
to repeat itself. It's like nuances of history over time seem to cycle back around. We see this in fashion, okay, in clothes, style, uh, circumstances. We can even see it in events that happen. Now, the events may not be identical, and they may not be the same, but as Mark Twain would say it, there seems to be a rhyme to it all. And see, one way I can prove that history actually repeats itself, and, um, and I would say in the not-so-great way, uh, but it should have been left back in the 80s and 90s, um, should have left long ago and never returned at all. I don't know why it returned, but the comeback is fierce. And it's the comeback of the mullet. <laughs> Business in the front, flowing locks of party in the back. It seems like these kids through COVID had something go on. And they thought, you know what? That wasn't cool then, but it's going to be cool now. And we're going to make it really, really cool. We actually played a soccer team about a week ago. Two of the kids had mullets on the team. And I thought, you know what? We're in some serious trouble. They definitely probably look better than us. And with those two mullets, they probably play soccer better than us. I mean, I think we could probably maybe convince Trevor. Just saying. But all jokes aside with the mullet, history does seem to have a way of coming back around. And here's what George Bernard Shaw said. He said this right here. If history repeats itself... And the unexpected always happens. How incapable must man be of learning from experience? That we're incapable of learning from past generations, of failing to heed the warnings and to observe the consequences which happened. And I think this is really best seen in Israel, although we could come up with many, many examples over many, many years. Let me give you a quick overview of the Old Testament. Please don't replace this with your reading of the Old Testament, but I can give you just a quick glimpse of what it looks like. God sets a nation apart. That nation is Israel. And God set them apart to be God's people. He set them apart so that they would be like God and they would represent God to all the other nations so that when the other nations would look at them, they would look at them and say, something's different about you. It's just something, we don't have what you have. And so Israel would be with God. And then all of a sudden, they would integrate to other cultures and, and, and other people groups. And then all of a sudden, they would start to turn away from God. And they're taking a dip down. And within this dip, they would be warned, don't do this. This is bad. Here's what happens if you do this. They would do it anyway. And the consequences would come. And they would be at rock bottom. And guess what they would do? They would cry out to God. And God would listen and God would send somebody, whether it be a judge, a prophet, a king, somebody, and they would start this turn back upward out of the valley. And they would get on top again, and guess what? You got it. It just looks like this, the whole Old Testament. Okay, that's all it is. That's really what it looks like. And there's one point in time that a king refused to heed advice. And when the king refused to heed the advice, the kingdom would be split apart. Northern kingdom, 10 tribes. Judah or the southern kingdom, two tribes. Now, there was a world power at a time called the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did is they came in and they just practically took over everything, invading the northern kingdom of Israel. 
The northern kingdom refused to heed the warning, and in 722 and 721 BC, they would be eradicated, basically gone, decimated, to exist really no more. Well, here's Judah at the south. They could learn from the northern kingdom. They could, they could, they could like look up and say, oh, this isn't good. How did this happen? Except here's the deal. The Assyrians would go out of power. Guess who would rise? The Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And Judah did not learn from the northern kingdom. And guess what happens? Babylon invades Judah, invades Jerusalem, and now they find themselves in trouble. And the man we're going to look at really quick here in just a moment is Ezekiel. Ezekiel um, was exiled to Babylon during this time. And he's going to prophesy to those in exile about Jerusalem, its condition, and why it ended up the way it ended up. And I promise you, this wasn't written about America, but I think you could probably insert it here. It reads like this. See how the leaders of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. In you they have treated father and mother with contempt. In you they have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the orphan and the widow. In you are people who accept bribes to shed blood. You take interest and make a profit from the poor. You extort unjust gain from your neighbors. And listen to this. This is so critical. You have forgotten me. You've forgotten me. you forgot who you are in me. you forgot who I am in you. You've forgotten all about how you got to where you got in the first place. And that is the declaration of the sovereign Lord. And it keeps going. There is a conspiracy of her princes within her like a roaring lion tearing its prey. They devour people. They take treasures and precious things and make many widows within her. And the people who are supposed to intercede, who are supposed to be between the people and God and lead the people toward God, look at what it says. Her priests do violence to my law and they profane my holy things. Her officials within her are like wolves tearing their prey. They shed blood and they kill people to make unjust gain. Her prophets, are, they're whitewashed these deeds. They cover them up for them by false visions and lying divinations. And they say, this is what the sovereign Lord says when the Lord has not spoken. And then the people of the land. The people of the land practice extortion and commit robbery. They oppress the poor and needy and mistreat the alien, denying them justice. Jerusalem's broken, the walls are battered, and the temple is absolutely destroyed. The people, but especially the leaders of Israel, have failed their own people. They were supposed to lead the people forward into God. They were supposed to lead the entire nation forward to be a nation that looked like God, that represented God, but they abandoned the mission. And God's looking. God's actually in search. He needs one he needs just one person who will stand up. And it can be someone and anyone if they would just be willing. And this is what Ezekiel says. I looked for a man among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap. And this is where we're going to hang our hat for a moment. Stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not destroy it. But look. I found no one. No one. No one in all the land 
No one to bridge the gap, no one to stand in on behalf of the people. It was a failure to learn from the previous generations before. Because Israel, Judah, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, Israel as a whole, they forgot who they were. They forgot whose they were, and they forgot what purpose they existed. It really, what they did is they lost sight of the mission. Well, let me tell you something about the mission then. The mission then is the same mission now, and the mission now will be the same mission until Jesus comes back. And it's this right here. It is love God, love people, make disciples. We hear that all the time around here at the creek. We hear it at all of our locations and all of our locations in the future. Guess what? They will hear this same mission, and it's not a new mission. It's actually an old mission that dates all the way back to the Old Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy 6 where it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's love God. Make disciples follows that very closely because it says this, You need to bind them on your foreheads. Implant them in your heart. And then here it is. You need to teach your children when, wherever you are. When you go on the road, when you come home, when you sit down at dinner, when you lie down at bed, you need to teach the next generation to love me with everything. Leviticus 19 says, love your neighbor as yourself. Basically this, be a nation that loves God with all that you are, and be a nation that loves your neighbor as yourself. Stand in the gap for the people. And let me tell you something. The mission didn't change even when Jesus came on because he came not to abolish the law, but he came to fulfill the law. He just repeated the mission. And then you know what he said to his disciples when he left? Repeat the mission. And you know what he says to the church today? Repeat. The mission. But Jesus wouldn't simply speak it. He wouldn't just simply say, listen, do as I say. He would also say, do as I do. I'm going to show you what it looks like to stand in the gap. And I just want to paint a picture for you really quickly as we zoom through several passages in the New Testament of what this looks like to stand in the gap. And so we're going to just fly right through. It gives you an overview, but not the whole picture. Here's what it says. Now there was a Pharisee uh, named Nicodemus. A Pharisee was the, the religious rulers at the time who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. This is a powerful Pharisee. This guy has a lot of clout. He has a lot of say. And what did he do? He came to Jesus at night and he began a conversation with Jesus. And you know what Jesus did? He said, get out of here. I got to sleep. Come back to me in the morning. My office hours are eight to five. I would appreciate it if you would show up at that time. No, 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 no. He had a conversation with Nicodemus until the conversation came to an end. And that's what he did. He conversed. But then we go to John chapter 4 and it says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. He didn't really have to because Jews went around Samaria. But no, Jesus said, no, I have to go through Samaria. You don't understand what's on the other side of this. Samaritan and Jews hated each other, despised each other with a passion so much so that Jewish people wouldn't even step foot on the land in Samaria. They were, they were half-breeds to them. They didn't like them. They thought that they were corrupt. 
And Samaritans just didn't like the Jews because they were pious, pompous jerks a lot of the times. And Jesus says, no, I have to go. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus tried, or, or Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well, and it was about noon. When a Samaritan woman, Jewish men didn't talk to Jewish women in public. Jewish people didn't talk to Samaritans ever. And here's Jesus doing both. A Samaritan woman to draw water, and it just says, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? The conversation continues. Her life is forever changed. The very reason she came to that well she left without completing the task. It says this, then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people who didn't like her, she was outcast, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? And then it says many, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. Jesus would continue his journey. He would be actually in Jerusalem. He would come to a pool where people thought you actually got healed for whoever was the first person in the pool. And here's what it says. Here, a great number of disabled people used to lie. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And then it says this. When Jesus saw him, he just looked. I just see when, I, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, he engaged him in conversation. Then Jesus finds himself in a predicament. Not for Jesus, but, well, at least the Pharisees thought it would be. It says the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery in the law. Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? And it says, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to him, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. You be the first. And they all left. And then Jesus straightened up. And look at this. He asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And he says, Then neither do I condemn you. Go now and leave your life a sin. And as he went along the way, look at this. He saw. A man, blind from birth, his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The conversation would continue with the disciples. The conversation would continue with the blind man. And here's what Jesus would say. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told them, wash in the pool of Siloam. So the man went, washed, came home seeing Jesus continues his journey. He finds himself at a funeral of a widow whose only son has died. And look at what the scripture tells us. When the Lord, he saw her and his heart went out to her. His heart went out to her. He said, don't cry. 
Don't cry. Then there's a woman on his way to, um, uh, she's bleeding for 12 years. He's on his way to, to heal Jairus' daughter. And she touches the hem of his robe because she's exhausted everything. And it says, then the woman, seeing that she could not go unnoticed because Jesus said, hey, power went out for me. Somebody's touched me. And he said, listen, Jesus, everybody's touching you. You don't understand how many thousands of people are around you. Of course people are touching He said, this is different. This is unique. Something's changed. And, and she came trembling, fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told him why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. Then he said to her, and this is so critical, he just looks at her and he says, daughter, you're no longer outcast, you're different. You're no longer defined by your condition. You're defined by who I say you're defined by, and you're now a daughter. Your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Jesus is coming down off a mountain. And when he comes down off the mountainside, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. Somehow he snuck in. Somehow he came through. Somehow he left his little outcasted group of other lepers and came to find Jesus Christ because he knew Jesus was the only hope for him. Lepers were put in a community all by themselves to watch each other rot until death. And he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. But see, it wasn't limited to just Jewish people. We saw that in the Samaritan woman. But it wasn't just limited to Jewish people and Samaritans. It actually went beyond that because he said when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, that's a Roman official. The Romans were the one who oppressed the Jewish people, who ruled the Jewish people, Rome being the super world power at that time. And this man comes to him and asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And here's what Jesus said. I will go. I'll go. How many people wanted Jesus' attention? So many people. But he said, I'll go. And guess what? I'll heal him. And it says, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth, another enemy. That's the people who turned their back on their own people. He said, follow me. Matthew got up and followed him. And when Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, many outcasts came and guess what they did? Jesus had dinner with them. They're just hanging out, having dinner, having a good old time talking about change, talking about the kingdom, talking about whatever, about life. And this really encompasses everything we just talked about. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And when he saw, when he saw, listen, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had compassion because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to fulfill the mission of love God, love people, make disciples, to live out the greatest commands. And it's not this. It's not about going to church. And it's not about having the church or even having to go to church. It's about being the church. Amen. And we are most like Jesus when we love God and when we love people the way that Jesus did. 
And I think there's many ways to do this. We can all sit around and come up with all sorts of ways of what this looks like. But if we want to give an umbrella over what this looks like, I think we stand in the gap best when we do this right here, when we build bridges and not barriers. We stand in the gap best when we build bridges and not barriers. We say it, Ethan said it earlier, bridges are better than barriers. Let me tell you something, barriers are easy. Barriers are natural. We can build walls like it's nobody else's business. And you know who the best people at building walls are? Christians. The church is great at building up walls. Most of the time, churches are known for what they don't do and what they are against than what they do and what they are for. That's really what happens a lot of times. It's easier to not stand in the gap. You know why? The gap is messy. The gap is uncomfortable. The gap requires something from you and I. And it's easier for churches to keep people out because they're afraid of their church becoming tainted. Or it's easier to keep them out because they don't want to mess up what they've worked so hard to create. I had this happen in my very, very, one of my very first ministry experiences. I was a student pastor, and I just really wanted to reach students. Any student that wasn't going to church, I just wanted to reach them. I started with what I knew best, and that was my soccer team. And when I got the whole soccer team coming, we would continue to build the student ministry out of that. And all of a sudden, uh, people were starting to come, and I had this one young man come. This one young man was rough around the edges. That's to say it politely, okay? That's a politically correct way to say it politely. And the struggle is real for this guy. He looks pretty beat up. Um, I had a conversation with him outside the church before he entered the church. He said, he said, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you. I really don't believe in this Jesus thing, and I'm a Wiccan. And I said, we don't have any Wiccans. Come on in. We'd love to have you. Come on. So he started coming, and he would come week after week after week after week. And this guy would also smoke before youth group, and he would smoke after youth group, okay? Listen, one thing at a time, all right? I had to get him into the church first, okay? One thing. And so as he was coming, I had a lady from the church approach me after youth, after he had started walking home, and he was gone. And she came up to me, and she said, Will, do you know who that is? I said, yeah, it's so-and-so, and I called him by name. And she said, but do you know who he is? I said, yeah, it's so-and-so. She said, no, 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 he's not a good kid. He cusses a lot. I said, I know he cusses in church all the time. And he's very disrespectful on the bus, and he actually gets in fights all the time. I said, okay. He hasn't been in a fight yet here. She said, you don't understand. I don't know if this is the best place for him. So I throat punched her, put her on the ground. <laughs> I wanted to. Okay, that was what was going through my mind. And I was really, like, it took all I could in me not to just scream at her and say, this is the exact place he needs to be. But she would have rather had a wall because a guy cusses a lot. He doesn't practice what we practice. Um, he was pretty dirty at times. And you know what? He was pretty disrespectful, but never to me. And I thought, man, this is the best place for him to be. And I just knew, I was like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to impact this area 
if, if this is the case. And it just took a lot of wrestling. It was really, really hard on me. But we can create barriers to exclude people like him, or we can build bridges to include. And when we exclude and when we build barriers, guess what we're doing? We're repeating history and losing sight of the mission. And we begin to abandon the very reason the church exists. And if we're going to be a church, continue to be a church that is built to last in order to continue to have impact for generations to come, we must build bridges and not barriers. And I think the question is how. How do we do this? How do we build bridges in order for you and I to stand in the gap, for the creek to stand in the gap wherever it is that we find ourselves? And I think first and foremost, it takes being about the very thing that Jesus was about. And it's this right here. Let's be about people. Which people? All people. But what about the, them too? But the, no, those people too. I don't care who these and those are. Jesus didn't either, and he was about all people. That no matter where Jesus was and no matter where he was headed, if someone wanted his attention, he gave them time. He treated them as human beings. Even when he was being hurt along, even when he was hounded and pressed in by the crowds, he always made time for people. And if we're going to be about people like Jesus was about people, then I have a phrase that I personally say all the time. And I share it with a lot of people frequently that when we're about people, this is going to be one of the most critical things. Head up, eyes open. Who is it and what is it? that God wants me to see. A lot of times we get caught up in our own routine and business, but are we willing to be unhurried, uncomfortable, interruptible, and inconvenienced? There's another time, I'm not the student minister, I'm actually the lead pastor at this time, but I was one of the few that had a CDL driver's license, and I would drive our students to camp to Daytona Beach, Florida. Uh, one, because I enjoyed it. Two, um, it just, it, it was like a breath of fresh air sometimes. And three, there's nothing better than seeing students get on fire for Jesus. And that's what happened at Passion Camp. But listen, we left at 3 in the morning on Central Time, and what turned well, was supposed to be a 12-hour bus ride turned into a 22-hour bus ride. After two flat tires and six new tires all replaced, we finally got on the road outside of Chattanooga and arrived at Daytona Beach at the ripe hour of 2.30 a.m. And only imagine 35 students and 15 adults getting off the bus at 2.30 in the morning at, two, at that time, after a 22-hour bus ride. We're, we're, we're launching all their luggage off. We're trying to get them set up. We're in a complex, three houses, right up on the beach, except this is a complex that you can circle around because it has a circle drive around it. On the middle section are apartments that, that Daytona residents live in. And on the right, there's some vacation rentals and some apartments, and on the left are more apartments that Daytona residents live in. And you can only imagine, listen, students aren't the quietest people in the world, ever. But then at 2.30 in the morning after a long bus ride, you know, it's a different animal. And once we get them settled in their houses and listen, the bus, when you put it in reverse, it has this obnoxious beep, but at 2.30 in the morning, it sounds like tornado sirens are going off. And as we did that, Brittany said, Will, I, I think we made a neighbor mad. I said, really? She goes, yeah, this lady came out and she's not on the welcoming committee. 
She wasn't welcoming us with confetti cannons saying, hey, welcome to Daytona Beach. Thought you'd be here earlier, but glad you made it. It's 2.30 in the morning, but I wanted to make sure that you had the best welcome you ever had coming to Daytona. No, it was a death-scathing welcome because it was Monday morning, and I knew this. She had to get up and go to work, and I thought, oh, no, what a way to start off a week. But that wasn't the only time we ticked her off. We ticked her off multiple times. We had a student who lived in his own world. That's all he did was live in his own world. And one time he was in the world of noise-canceling beats. And he's walking around the parking lot in his own world. And she pulls up and she's honking the horn, (laughs) oblivious. And I'm out there getting the bus ready to take the kids to camp. I walk over to him and I kind of slightly push him out said, let's not noise-cancel beats in the parking lot. Let's go to the beach. That's the best place. She's ticked to high heaven. And the thought crossed me. Our church, our, our bus says church on the side. And this lady, if she doesn't like church or if she's had a bad experience at church, we've just escalated this experience. And it, it, it weighed on me. And it's where I came up with this idea of head up and eyes open. I've got to be aware of what's around me. I've got to be aware of who's around me. So that's what I do. At the end of camp, at the end of that week, I had three senior students. They came up to me and they said, Will, we got to talk to you tonight. After fourth meal, we need to talk. And this is like 10 o'clock at night, and that's well past my bedtime, okay? I'm a, I'm a go-to-bed-early kind of guy and a get-up-early kind of guy. But I thought, you know what? These students need me to stand in the gap. I'm going to stand in the gap for them. We stayed up till midnight talking. I explained to them about some different things with ministry and this idea of head up and eyes open. And I told them about our neighbor. And one guy who was 6'5", about 250, he stood up and he said, you need me to go talk to her? I said, no, sit down. You don't understand. You're going to scare the poor lady and we've already ticked her off. I said, How can we stand in the gap? What if we could change her perception of church forever? And he goes, well, what are we going to do? I said, listen, here's exactly what I'm going to do. I pulled out five gift cards to restaurants in Daytona Beach. Cost me, I don't know, probably about 150 bucks. I slapped them on the table. I said, here's a card from Encounter Community Church, and we're going to write her a letter. And we're going to say, listen, I'm sorry that you've been inconvenienced this week. And I'm sorry we really made you mad probably a lot of times. I know that we've come in for one week and we're leaving, but you live here all the time. But I just want you to know, God loves you, we love you, and we appreciate you sharing your complex with us this week. Go have about five six, seven meals on us, whatever it looks like. So that's what we did. We all four signed the card. We stuck it in there and we quietly taped it to her door when we left early the next morning and we drove off. And I have zero idea what happened. But behind every frustration and behind every aggravation and behind every hurt and behind every decision, there is a person. And it's a person with a story, but more important, it's a person created in the image of God. So we make it about people and we have to keep our head up and eyes open wherever we are. And then the last thing I think is absolutely critical, and we talked a little bit about it last week, is make the empty seat the most important seat. Who needs to be here that's not here? And how can you and I begin to leverage our influence so that people can experience the love and grace of Jesus Christ? 
One last quick illustration that I just want to give you is we had this guy who would come to church on and off in Owensboro. He was very, very hit or miss. And put it this way, most churches don't want this guy in their church. All right? It's just, it's a different story. It's just a different animal. You, You couldn't understand him half the time. But man, was he dedicated. One night after, or one early morning on a Sunday morning, it is pouring the rain. And I look out and I see him pushing the shopping cart up the hill and turning into our parking lot and coming to the front door. And I'm talking, it looks like he had just jumped in a 12-foot swimming pool. And I thought to myself, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? But I'm not going to leave him out here. All of his stuff soaked. It's in a shopping cart. I said, guys, go get the shopping cart. Push it around the back of the building. I said, go grab some baptistry towels. And let's get this guy dried off. And let's get it cleaned up. And let's let him sit in church. He had just come off a binge. I think probably about four or five day binge. It was rough. And I just took him and I said, Stephen, let's go to the front row. And you can sit next to me all service. And he's a distraction. But I'll tell you this, there's not a man I've met that loves Jesus more than him. And I think we must never be a church that fails to stand in the gap. And this is how we stand in the gap. It's people, it's head up, eyes open, it's make the empty seat the most important seat. But I think the why is probably even more important than the how, but we can never forget the how. And we have to have both the why and the how that go together. And the question is, is why do we stand in the gap? I don't want to be someone where God looks down and says, I'm looking and searching for someone to stand in the gap and I found no one. And this is why we stand in the gap. We stand in the gap for others because the one who stood in the gap for us also stood in the gap for them. have it all together and we may not have it all together but there's a point in time where none of us had it together and even while we were yet sinners Christ died for us even when we didn't have it all together Jesus stood in the gap even when we couldn't stand in that gap and God knew it God said no I'm going to send Jesus Christ to earth so that he can stand in the gap and he will make a way but the way he stood in the gap for all of us we ought to go and stand in the gap for others because bridges are better than barriers. And we have to build bridges if we want to be a church that is built to last. That if we're gonna be a church that can be a church of hope that the world can and will change again. And I believe this, we have to find ourselves in the gap. Where is it? I'll tell you where it's not. It's not in the boat. It's going to take you and I stepping out of the boat where it's uncomfortable, where it's really, really risky because we're going to step out of the boat and onto the water because on the water is where Jesus is. And I promise you this, that when we step out of the boat and we risk it all and that person experiences the love and Jesus, love of grace of Jesus Christ for the very first time, promise you this, that on the other side, you will say this, the risk was worth it. Father God, thank you that God, you thought we were worth it. 
that you thought it was us that was absolutely worth the risk and the sacrifice. You knew we wouldn't be perfect. You knew we couldn't get it right all the time. But God, you sent your son anyway so that we could have life and we could have life in abundance. God, my prayer right now is if somebody here has no clue who you are, that today would be the day that they experience your love and grace. And God, I pray for us as a church, as the Creek Church, that God, we know we can't stay here, that we have to keep going forward, and that God, you have a plan and a purpose for our lives. And God, we wanna be a church that is found standing in the gap. We wanna be a church that is found building the bridge and not the barriers where we make people the most important thing. So God, we give you the glory and we give you the, we just thank you so much for who you are and what you're doing. In Christ's name I pray, amen.